Welcome to another episode of In War and Peace with me Björn Wegner. In today's episode you will hear when I talk to Ambassador Alexander Vershbov. Ambassador Vershbov is currently a distinguished fellow at the Scowcraft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. Ambassador Vershbov has previously served in many distinguished positions but most previously he served as the Deputy Secretary General of NATO and before that he served as the U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. During our conversation, Ambassador Vershbov gave his view on some of the greatest challenges facing the world in regards to international security. Before we roll the tape, I want to inform you that this podcast is produced in cooperation with the Swedish Defense Association, AFF. But now it's time to head to Lidinge in Stockholm on the 4th of June 2018. So now I'm sitting here with Ambassador Alexander Vershbov, uh, who is a distinguished fellow at the Scowcraft Center for Strategy and Security uh, at the Atlantic Council. And he is also a former Deputy Secretary General at, of NATO. And he has also served at other prominent positions within the National Security and Foreign Policy Establishment. But uh, Ambassador, uh, my first question to you now, we will cover a range of topics here, but since we are at the conference now for young leaders, can you tell us a little bit about your own career path? Well, I got interested in international affairs when I was uh, pretty young as a high school student because uh, just by chance my high school offered Russian as one of the foreign languages and I started Russian when I was 15 and had the chance to travel to the Soviet Union uh, in the summer of 1969 and that inspired me to kind of focus on Russia in in both college and graduate school and uh, so that ultimately led me to join the uh, US diplomatic service the foreign service uh, through the normal examination process and uh, I was fortunate to be able to work on a lot of very uh, high-profile issues, uh, the strategic arms talks, the uh, dual-track decision uh, in Europe, uh, the conflicts in former Yugoslavia during the 1990s, uh, helped negotiate the agreement between uh, Boris Yeltsin and the NATO leaders on NATO-Russia cooperation. So uh, I kind of fell in it. It fell into this because of the Russian language, but uh, I found uh, being a practitioner, actually being someone who's on the inside trying to shape the policy, has been the most satisfying way to use the the knowledge that I gained uh, as a student. Okay, but uh, which would you say is the most valuable traits that have carried you through this career, which are the most important things to think about when you're a young professional thinking about the future career? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's important to gain uh, different kinds of experience in the early parts of your career. Uh, I had the chance to work both in the State Department, uh, uh, in embassies overseas. I worked at the White House in the mid-90s, in the middle of my career. Uh, and also worked on a, ver- a variety of different issues. I uh, even served as ambassador to South Korea and got involved in the North, North Korean nuclear issue, in trade policy, uh, environmental issues, food safety. So 
to succeed in uh, in uh, the diplomatic career, you need to be able to multitask and have multiple areas of expertise. But I think for what's all, most important is to become uh, an idea person, to have uh, not only an ability to analyze, but to solve problems, to come up with with uh, solutions, to come up with strategies, and to sell those uh, ideas to the senior decision makers. Uh, that's the way you can change the world. Uh, it also makes for a much more satisfying career. <laughs> okay. So, but based on your experience and you're still active in the field, uh, as we spoke about earlier, uh, which are the three largest and most important challenges in the world now for the, in a foreign policy national security aspect? Well, I think the biggest challenge uh, is, uh, is Russia. Uh, and it's not just for the transatlantic community, but I think it's a global challenge. But the problem is most severe in Europe, where Russia has uh, basically violated all the agreements that were reached with the Soviet Union and with uh, Gorbachev and Yeltsin uh, on how European security was supposed to be handled, changing borders by force, launching illegal covert wars in eastern Ukraine, continuing to occupy parts of Georgia. Um, this all makes Russia very difficult to manage. And I think Russia wants to be in a confrontation with the West. So, so it's harder to solve problems than it was in the 70s and 80s with the, uh, when we had Brezhnev than it is with uh, today's uh, very revisionist Russia. I would put uh, the kind of the general instability and, uh, and chaos in the Middle East as the second most serious problem. It has many different sources. Some of it's uh, weak uh, governance, corruption, lack of opportunity. Some of it is a radical ideology that inspires ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And it's both a direct threat to the countries, but also it's spilling over in the form of refugees, migration, and uh, homegrown terrorism. Uh, then I would put China, and these are not necessarily in, in any order. <laughs> China is perhaps the longer-term challenge for the United States and, and the free world, because uh, it's uh, trying to change the balance of power in Asia. It uses uh, unfair competitive practices to uh, expand its own trade and steal our intellectual property. Uh, it has got a global, global ambitions to expand its influence uh, all across Eurasia and even Africa and the Middle East. So China can, perhaps may be easier to manage than Russia, but it still is a long-term challenge. But you, you served as a Deputy Secretary General of NATO, so I'm wondering how do you see NATO's role in addressing these challenges? Well, I think NATO has been sort of critical to dealing with the much more aggressive Russia. Uh, part of it is defending ourselves and, and preventing the Russians from having a, even a small temptation to attack us. And so that's why NATO has been building up its, uh, its forces and, its, and the responsiveness of its uh, military forces. But NATO is also part of uh, the, the uh, policy to strengthen countries along Russia's borders, like Ukraine and Georgia, so that we can try to, we can help them defend their sovereignty and not uh, give Russia the 
belief that it can continue to expand its uh, domination uh, beyond its immediate neighborhood. Uh, now, NATO isn't the only response to Russia. I think we need to, you know, we have to apply economic sanctions. We also have to offer uh, ways, ways out for Russia to come back into uh, the international order. Uh, the European Union has a role to play uh, uh, in this regard. We need a political and military response to Russia. We have to you know, work together to prevent them from interfering in our politics and uh, manipulating social media to, uh, to change the uh, results of elections. Uh, so there's a lot of different aspects to the problem, and NATO is uh, at least part of the, uh, the answer. With respect to China, NATO is less relevant, uh, given NATO is, is still a regional organization. But I think it's a place where we can try to develop a common understanding of the problem, uh, because we, you know, we share intelligence. We have really deep political discussions, so that uh, maybe outside of NATO, we could develop a more effective policy based on the discussions we have inside NATO. Uh, Terrorism also you know, requires a comprehensive approach. NATO has only got one part of it because the response to terrorism is only partially military. Uh, the real challenge is to get to the, to the root causes of radicalization and terrorism. Uh, some of that can be done by helping to train uh, the forces of uh, of Middle Eastern countries, of helping them counter information war by, by terrorist groups. Uh, a lot of that, though, is, uh, you know, again, beyond the scope of a military alliance. Uh, but NATO can be the place where we, we forge a, a better understanding of what it takes to solve a problem like terrorism. But if we're looking at the U.S. role in the world, that has changed a bit since uh, President Trump won the election and became the president of the U.S. But how do you view U.S. role uh, in the world and in NATO in the coming five to ten years, depending both on Mr. Trump's uh, policies and the next president, or if Mr. Trump continues to serve mm -hmm. as the president? Yeah, yeah well... Yeah, we still have at least two and a half more years of President Trump and uh, maybe six and a half. So uh, that's, the, that's the reality, whether we like it or not. Uh, I have plenty of concerns about uh, President Trump's overall foreign policy approach, this whole America first uh, agenda, which uh, increasingly looks like America alone on issues like climate change, on the Iran nuclear deal, uh, and now we're looking like we're going to you know, go against our own allies on trade policy. But on NATO and on, on defense and security, I think the Trump administration is basically continuing the policies of its predecessors. The, we've seen, uh, you know, despite some criticism of NATO, uh, strong support for all the uh, measures taken to strengthen the defense against Russia, to uh, increase the U.S. military presence in Eastern Europe, to continue to support the, uh, uh, the NATO decisions to bring these battalions into Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Uh, so uh, when it comes to defense and security, you know, the actions uh, may, may be better than the words, but the actions count more than words. Uh, <laughs> 
But there's always a danger that the dif differences that are becoming more numerous on trade, on Iran, on uh, the, the Middle East and the, the, and the you know, issues surrounding the moving of our embassy in Jeru to Jerusalem, uh, all these things you know, undermine some of the uh, unity and cohesion that is necessary for NATO to continue to function. So it's going to be a challenge for both sides of the Atlantic to maintain the cooperation where, it, where it's still good <laughs> and try to isolate the problems as much as possible so that uh, uh, we don't have a kind of a you know, domino effect of disagreement in one area undermining agreement in another area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I'm thinking here some analysts are expecting China to rise even further on the global stage in the years to come. But how do you view China's rise in the world and uh, their political view on different things in regards to a world that has been shaped a lot by the Western world and our values about human rights and such? Uh, how do you think this will develop? I mean, in regards to that the U.S. role in the world is a bit changing and China's rise. Well, clearly, there's you know rising powers, and China is the the rising the fastest and will become uh, you know probably the closest peer competitor to the United States uh, in the coming years uh, you know, Russia will be you know falling to third place and largely because it's still a nuclear power Russia brings very little to the international community besides uh, oil gas and nuclear weapons uh, so, so China's rise is a challenge because China is showing increasingly uh, expansionist tendencies in, in, uh, in its neighborhood, particularly with its buildup of military forces in the South China Sea. Uh, but on the other hand, China as a global economic and trading partner is still, I think, uh, uh, a stakeholder in uh, the international system. I think the rules although it breaks them sometimes, uh, particularly on intellectual property rights and things like that. Uh, but on the whole, the rules uh, and respect for those rules ultimately helps China. And so I think we can, with good diplomacy and, and tough trade policies, can uh, steer China to, to remain a responsible participant in the international system. I'm much more pessimistic about Putin's Russia um, because Russia actually thrives on confrontation and by being uh, the unpredictable, provocative neighbor rather than uh, uh, a neighbor pursuing genuine two-way cooperation. Uh, but it will, you know, the United States alone isn't going to be able to manage China. That's why uh, transatlantic disagreements on trade are, are uh, very counterproductive. We should be unifying our efforts to stand up to China when it does break the rules, when it does pressure our companies to give away their their trade secrets and their their, uh, their innovations for free. Uh, we shouldn't be fighting among ourselves. Uh, we, you know, we are each other. Europe and America are each other's biggest market, and we should uh, build on that strength rather than. Uh, you know, descend into a kind of fratricidal struggle. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, I was thinking you talked a, a bit about Russia and you also did that previously here in your keynote speech at the conference we are on. But uh, can you uh, summarize this, uh, what you think can be a successful strategy for the Western world and the US to counter the Russian operations currently and also I don't, I don't want to say defeat, because there is no such, such thing as defeat, but to manage Russia yeah, in the, the long man, term. Manage is the right word. Yeah. And because I think essentially, because of Putin's view of the world and the nature of the political system in Russia, we're going to be in a, in a kind of competition, a strategic competition with Russia for, I think, all six years of Putin's a new term and, and maybe even longer given that his system now is uh, dominated by people with the same uh, KGB background and, uh, and very hostile anti-Western worldview. And he, as I've been saying, he needs confrontation with the West, I think, to maintain control and stability at home. He's no longer delivering a real uh, improvement in people's standard of living. They have demographic problems. They've failed to diversify the economy. Uh, and are overly dependent on energy. And so for Putin, it's easier to keep the people mobilized by, host, you know, by portraying the West as uh, encircling Russia and seeking to uh, you know, weaken Russia than to develop a, a new kind of uh, detente with the West. So we have to take, take, you know, accept that reality. Uh, you know, it would be nice to do some business with Russia, but there's not much business that's in our mutual interest. So we do have to manage the relationship, make sure that the military uh, dimension doesn't get out of control. Russia's been behaving in a much more aggressive way, not only in Ukraine, but in terms of its exercises, uh, simulations of, uh, of attacks on even on Sweden and not just on NATO countries. Uh, so we need to sort of try to get the Russians to uh, come back into respect for sort of arms control agreements, transparency agreements, so we have a more stable military situation. And then uh, we have to kind of stand up to Russia when it's trying to uh, take away the sovereignty of its neighbors. That means supporting Ukraine economically, politically, militarily, uh, you know, short of going to war with Russia, uh, helping them defend their own sovereignty. Uh, we have to protect our own societies against the Russian disinformation and destabilization. Uh, some of it's, you know, you can, some of it you can see in terms of how they use fake accounts and botnets to uh, spread uh, uh, extremist opinions in, in, our, in our debates. But some of it's also dirty money, uh, covert support for extremist politicians like you know, Marine Le Pen, her party was financed by Russia. Uh, we have to expose these kinds of things and help countries like Ukraine and Georgia you know, defend themselves against this kind of interference. So it takes a comprehensive approach, but the main thing is more to contain and manage Russia. I don't see very many areas where we're going to cooperate with Russia. Um, maybe North Korea, a few areas where we might see a similar interest, but uh, we've seen in Syria, despite Russia pretending to fight against terrorism, it's really just propping up the regime and establishing a bigger military presence for itself. Um, 
we've never been fighting the same enemies in Syria. <laughs> no, I think that is obvious when you look at the facts on the ground, so to say. Uh, we're uh, and we're getting closer to ending this conversation because uh, you have uh, another <laughs> place to go and the conference <laughs> will go on. But uh, I also wanted to hear your opinion on the um, challenge of climate change because you did not address, you did not put that on the top three threats you were yeah. naming earlier. Yeah, maybe because I'm a, a, a diplomat whose career started before these global issues were so prominent on our agenda. I certainly. I'm seriously concerned about climate change. I'm even more concerned about my own country's pulling back from the uh, from the principles of the Paris Accord. Uh, on that score, uh, you know, the rest of the world needs to continue to set a good example. And I think you you can also go to the United States and see that 30 of our 50 states are continuing to to apply. Uh, you know, the principles of the Paris Accord and are trying to lower greenhouse gas emissions, even if uh, Washington is now in denial about the science of climate change. Uh, so, you know, the United States is not a lost cause on this issue, uh, thanks to our federal system. Um, and there's going to be, be an important battle coming up between California and the Trump administration over the uh, mileage requirements for our automobile makers with California demanding the, to maintain its right to establish stricter standards which in the end are taken up by most other states and uh, could prevent uh, Trump from uh, you know, playing into the uh, interests of the big oil companies. But certainly I now have two grandchildren and uh, you know, I worry about what kind of planet they're going to inherit from my generation and from even from their, you know, their parents' generation. Uh, so yes, climate change is a big problem, even if I'm still thinking more geopolitically than, uh, than younger diplomats might be thinking. <laughs> But uh, the final question before my absolutely last question, which is I always take on these interview sessions, is do you think we will manage the challenges then if we look 30, 50 years ahead? I think we will. I'm sort of an optimist that, uh, uh, you know, mankind ultimately, uh, you know, it does want to live in peace and, you know, families around the world, you know, just want to have a decent living and you know, a better, better world for, for their children and their children's children. So I think there are, uh, despite all the centrifugal forces and the uh, disunity that's coming out of, uh, the out of uh, populism and you know the the backlash to the effects of globalization on on our economies that you know, we will find a way to unite again uh, you know, I think we've learned in the 20th century that uh, you know the, a divided world ultimately can uh, you know end up in a massively destructive military confrontation. And we thought we had you know, eliminated the chances of war in Europe after 1989. It's clearly uh, not, not finished, the, the, the building a stable and peaceful Europe. Uh, but, uh, but I think we, you know, we learned from our mistakes, and uh, we, we will find a way back to a unified uh, uh, approach, hopefully even before the end of Donald Trump's administration. But if not, I'm sure the next president, Republican or Democrat, male or female, will uh, 
put America back on the mainstream where it has traditionally been as a you know, defender of liberal values and, uh, and transatlantic unity and cooperation. Yeah, but I think uh, a thing about humanity overall is that when we're faced with great challenges, we also have a large creativity to handle these issues and problems and solve them in, in the end. Yeah, and I think you know, there's still you know, tremendous uh, forces of innovation and uh, pushing the limits of technology, which will at least help us solve some of these problems. Uh, at the moment, we have uh, weak political systems, or in the case of the United States, a kind of a gridlocked political process, which Americans need to figure out a way to, to fix. Uh, we have so many domestic problems that we've neglected for 20 or 30 years uh, in terms of our, our own environmental problems, crumbling in infrastructure, uh, social divisions, uh, racial divisions. So uh, you know, we have to heal ourselves, and I think Europe is facing similar problems, uh, both with you know, retreat from liberal values in some countries and, and uh, divisions over, over migration. Uh, and, uh, and refugees. So uh, it takes leadership. Uh, technology alone won't solve it if we don't have political leadership uh, and vision to find uh, solutions that we can then sell to our people uh, and, and win back their confidence, uh, you know, counter the alienation that has contributed to this uh, unraveling of, uh, of the liberal order. Um, yeah. If we are stronger and more self-confident, uh, Putin will be much less uh, successful in trying to uh, interfere in our internal affairs. <laughs> I think that was a good strategy tip here in the end. But uh, my last and final question then is, uh, what kind of reading in terms of books and magazines and articles would you recommend uh, to our listeners? Well, I think, uh, I can't remember the, the title of the book, but uh, Richard Haas, the head of the Council on Foreign Relations, wrote a, a good book, at the, which was sort of meant to be uh, advice to the, uh, the next administration, it was written before the elections, which I think is a very good sort of overview of uh, sort of the challenges facing the United States and the, uh, and the, uh, and the international community. Also important to, uh, you know, to understand uh, uh, you know, the Russian challenge Again, I'm ter terrible at remembering the titles of books, but uh, the historian at Yale, Timothy Snyder, has a recent book out ab about uh, l looking at some of the darker pages of uh, Russia's recent past and its, the roots of its confrontation with Ukraine, uh, which is also, I think, an important uh, work. But for young people, I think, you know, this plug into uh, some of the most interesting uh, websites, I think, I find particularly indispensable both foreign policy and foreign affairs magazines have a constant stream of uh, thought-provoking articles about today's problems. And they, they look very globally. It's not just uh, about NATO and Russia, but about sort of all the different challenges we face. Sometimes uh, journalists can keep us more up-to-date than uh, traditional scholars. <laughs> yes, true. I mean, to keep, I mean, uh, to keep a good diet, you have to have the best of both worlds, so mm -hmm. to say. Uh, with those words, I thank you very much for taking your time, Mr. Ambassador, and uh, this will end the episode, and I will look up the books you noted, and I will publish them on my website okay. as, as I publish this. So thank you very much. You're very welcome.